someone among us has spoken dangerous words tonight. The words spoken over us earlier in the service are offensive and dangerous and in some points in history could get you arrested or even worse. In fact, if we take these words that were spoken over us seriously, you and I would need to assess our lives and die to some of our attitudes and practices and underlying beliefs. Who is the person among us who spoke these dangerous words? Andrea. Andrea Wright. And the words that she spoke that were so dangerous come from the book of Luke who records the song that Mary sang when she realized just whom the baby in who her womb was to become. And of course, I'm referring to our scripture reading, Mary's Magnificat. Mary's song is so powerful, so subversive to corrupt world powers, that in the 1980s, the government of Guatemala, a corrupt military, military coup dictatorship, made it illegal to recite Mary's song in public, either sung or just read. What was going on in Mary's song that the world powers would find dangerous, subversive, illegal? Wasn't she just singing about baby Jesus? Just singing about baby Jesus. That's part of our problem. Christmas is everywhere. Santas are in the malls. Sales are going strong, so I hear, and Christmas music fills every store and many of the radio waves. And if Jesus is even seen as part of Christmas, he's present, presented as cute and benign and cuddly and harmless. Christmas has become kind of domesticated in our culture. And it's for this reason that I think Advent has so much more importance to me personally, and I think to us as the church. Advent is the season built into the Christian calendar that gives us four Sundays to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, to celebrate well the birth of Jesus. It's the season that we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. And this Advent, we're not going to waste time talking about what is or isn't on cup at Starbucks, even though I had mine filled with Christmas blend the other day. I mean, come on! But I digress. Um, Advent season, um, this one in particular, is the season I want to focus on why Jesus came in the first place. And the first thing we can say is that the Father did not send Jesus to bring cuteness into the world. Your all's kids already did that pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Mary didn't sing in her Magnificat about cuteness. And if she had, I don't think corrupt world powers would have been too uh, threatened by her song. Why is Mary's song dangerous if it's just about Jesus? Because Jesus was born to bring justice. Jesus was born to embody the justice of God and to declare the beginnings of God's good kingdom rule on earth. The word justice is loaded with all kinds of cultural baggage to us. In our culture, when we hear uh, the word justice used, we oftentimes think of our legal justice system, which is really unjust. But anyway, when someone gets convicted of a crime and sentenced to prison, sometimes people say, or in the movies they say, justice is served. I don't know if they say it like that. 
or we feel the injustice of being treated unfairly. Like everybody kind of has a certain code. When the kids separate out their Halloween candy, there's a code, right? You don't get, you know, Snickers is not worth a Tootsie Roll. Everybody knows this. That's unjust if you make that trade, Sophia, to your younger sisters, I'm just saying. <clears throat> we see the world's definition of justice in films like The Avengers, which I love, but uh, it's where powerful vigilantes make sure the world is just and safe at least according to their terms. And all of these uses of the word justice have a ring of truth to them, but the justice Jesus came to bring is different. Usually when you and I talk about justice, we are at the center of the definition. What I mean is we like to define what fairness is, and we like to define what equality is, and what appropriate punishment is, and if need be, what proper vengeance is. In the world's sense of justice, we, human beings, get to define it. And basically what we want to do is be like God. But biblical justice starts with God. God defines justice, and then he calls you and I to live justly. And how is justice defined in the Bible? Lots of ways, but two main ones. The first is through the word mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. Mishpat is a Hebrew word that carries the meaning of economic or political justice. Mishpat deals with the common areas of life like the marketplace. For example, in the ancient Near East, when you went to the market and you wanted to buy barley, you would weigh it in a scale. You pay so much per omer of barley or whatever it was. I'll just use pounds for our sake, right? So you, you put your thing, well, it was common in the Near East to use pieces of lead at the bottom of the scale to throw the weight off. So really, you're ripping people off in the marketplace. That's why, if you ever notice in the Old Testament, God has lots of different areas where he commands just scales. And here's why. If you're really wealthy and you go to the market and you get ripped off and pay a, a little bit extra for some grain, it's not right, but you're going to be okay. But you know who it affects the most is the poor. Because when you're living barely, when you barely have enough and someone's ripping you off, it hurts all the more. And so, mishpat, justice in the economic place, is one of the ways that God talks about justice. The second biblical justice, or way biblical justice is defined is through the word, this one's a little trickier, go like that, tzedek, tzedek. Yeah, it sounds like there should be a vowel in there, but Hebrew does that all the time, because it's all consonants. But anyway, tzedek, which means right-relatedness right relatedness. It has to do with standing up against social oppression from racism and sexism to physical abuse and to genocide. It can be large-scale like ethnic cleansing or personal like how we treat each other on an individual basis. It even has to do with the kind of jokes we tell about certain types of people. Tzedek is usually translated into English as the word righteousness. Righteousness. So biblical justice is like a coin with mishpat on one side and tzedek on the other side. And one way to think about justice, the whole deal, the whole coin, is right-relatedness in society. Right-relatedness. So Mary's song is no lullaby. It's a song about justice. And justice is great news for the oppressed, but really hard news for the corrupt. In her song, she sings of God that he has shown great strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud. 
He's brought down the powerful from their thrones. He sent the rich away empty. All of this according to the promise he made to our ancestors. Some observations. First of all, what prompted Mary to sing this song? It was a result of her visit to her relative Elizabeth, who herself at the time was pregnant with Jesus' cousin John. And when Mary came in with baby Jesus in her womb, she comes into the room, I don't know if she's waddling yet or not, but anyway, she comes in, and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps inside of her. And Elizabeth declares that Mary was the mother of her Savior. And at once it seems that Mary puts the pieces together. The words spoken over her by the angel Gabriel, the mysterious pregnancy that just happened to her from the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth's words, all of it, the power of God coming rushing in. And if this is true, if the child that Mary was carrying is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, then God was being faithful to his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph and Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah and all the people of God is all happening in Mary's belly. That would make me sing too. And she knew that because this movement of God was set into motion, the world would never be the same. Thank you, Jennifer, for picking The World is About to Turn uh, in our music set. That, yes, I, I think that Mary sensed it. It was about to happen because of who was in her tummy. In her song, Mary uses verbs that make it sound as if justice had already come. Listen again. He has brought down the powerful. He has scattered the proud. See, she is so sure of God, so full of faith in his son, the king, that she can sing as though these things have already taken place. When God speaks, things happen. And what exactly was going to happen? We in the church have a tendency to spiritualize the Bible by ripping passages like this out of context and saying things like this, oh, Mary must be talking about something in the future. Or we say, God doesn't deal with things like that anymore. But let's not forget that Mary's world was one of corruption in her day. Rome was one of the most ruthless empires the world has ever seen. Augustus Caesar was in control as the emperor, and he killed his opponents and destroyed anyone who got in his way. And that's how he came to power. And then he simply took over whole tribes and nations, forcing them to pay high taxes to pay then for Roman garrisons that would keep them in line in their own territory. Israel was one of those nations that Rome had absorbed, and Mary was a nobody inside this great oppressive power in the world. Here's some good news. Sort of. Stick with me. World powers opposed to God and opposed to his justice, his mishpat, his tzedek, they will not stand. They will not stand. Assyria did not stand. Babylon, one of the mightiest of the nations, will not, did not stand. Egypt, crown of civilization, did not stand. Persia did not stand. Greece did not stand. Rome did not stand. Constantinople did not stand. And I firmly believe, and this isn't some quackpot 
prophetic thing. If the United States keeps going in the way we are going, we will not stand either. Mary's song should be somewhat terrifying for those of us who are part of a corrupt system. And our society has not been just. We have prisons overflowing with people of particularly one color, and it's not white, and our education system and our welfare system and our institutional racism have failed our people. We are controlled by fears of losing what we have in the face of mothers and fathers and children, refugees coming into our borders and many other borders. And we have forgotten that any of us who are non-Native Americans have come here at one time as refugees or ancestors of refugees, and once we got what was ours, we want to keep it for ourselves, rather than seeing this land and this democracy as something we steward, not own. And our society is sick with racism. Last week, the campus of Western Washington University was shut down because of threatening racist correspondence. Add that to Ferguson and all of the other things going on just in the last year, let alone centuries, and we still have a huge problem. This is what God will eradicate, and this is what we are called to stand against. I'm just, you see, I'm just scratching the surface. We could start talking. I'm just had the, the shooting at uh, the Planned Parenthood place, and I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. Our hearts are sick with greed. The celebration of God, who is born poor, that celebration is trumped by the celebration of spending and consumerism. So yes, Mary's song should give us pause. Before we celebrate with Mary, we should ask, gosh, whose side am I on? Who who am I in this song? Is Mary's song good news for me? If Jesus is born to bring justice, then there will be consequences for injustice. Those consequences are scary. Take Isaiah 25, for example. It's a passage that talks about the unjust and the proud and the arrogant being judged by God. Isaiah's speech is from the perspective of the Israelites who are held in captivity unjustly by the Babylonians. And like Mary's song, the opening five verses speak of God bringing justice for Israel and judgment on the nations. Listen to these words from Isaiah 25, 1 through 5. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness, for you have made a city into a heap talking about the Babylonian fortifications. A fortified city into a ruin, a place of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you, for you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the, from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. This passage speaks of two very important realities. One, the evil of the nations will be judged by God. He will remove the focal point of their pride. So, for example, if the military is the pride of said nation, 
he will crush it. If their king or queen is the pride, he will remove them from power. If it's their economic stranglehold on the world, he'll turn it upside down. God will bring justice in a just way. But the second reality is the outcome of judgment. And I wonder if you picked up on this. The outcome for those who are willing that's a qualifier. For those who are willing, the outcome of justice is repentance. Repentance, turning around, the opportunity to change. Those who are humbled by God can either rebel even further and say, I'm not following you for show now because you did that to me, or they can mourn over their sin and come and pay homage to God, which I suspect looking around, you've done before. I know I have. And this is what's going on in this passage early on in Isaiah 25. Listen, therefore a strong people will glorify you and cities of ruthless nations will revere you. And ironically, Rome, right, this empire that's so nasty in the, in the Bible and the Gospels becomes the center of Christianity for a long, long time. So God judges these nations in Isaiah 25, and then the strong nations come to revere him, to pay homage to him. It's the result of judgment. Because, and here, this is very important, God's justice is not like our justice. It's not vengeful. It's restorative. And cohort kids, if you're taking notes, you could write that God's justice is restorative, or makes us whole. He always wants to bring people to repentance, and that's exactly what we see in Jesus as well. Jesus was no pushover. He, he said some pretty hard things, but it was always trying to get people to turn around. Let's listen to Isaiah 25, 6 through 12, for a dose of amazing grace. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people's on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over the nations. He'll swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Does that sound familiar? Revelation, John's vision, oh, so good. That's where I'm at. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And when God speaks, stuff happens. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab will be trodden down in his place. A straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. At first glance, all this lavish talk about a feast seems completely out of place in a passage about justice and judging nations. Once again, that's because our idea of justice is influenced by non-biblical worldviews such as punishment and fairness. Punishment is not the goal of God's justice. 
I wonder if you've thought of that, that before. Punishment is not the goal of God's justice. Grace, not fairness, is the force behind God's justice. We don't want God to be fair. <laughs> I deserve a lot worse than I have. Grace is a good deal. This passage is filled with grace for those who repent. Not just Israelites, but everybody. Everybody. God creates the heavens and the earth, puts all these amazing plants and animals in it, creates men and women in his image so he can hang out with them. God is the great host. He provides food. He provides good vocation. Pretty awesome, Garden of Eden. He even hangs out with his creation in the cool of the morning, going on morning walks with them. Now, it's easy to be a great host when you have wonderful house guests. But God's guests, Adam and Eve and us, we kind of trashed his living room. We continue to do so. His crib, his creation. And one day I'll preach about all this stuff again, but in Genesis 1, we see the creation story told in the same way that architects in the ancient world talked about building temples. And so you could think of creation as being God's temple, like all of it, not just church buildings and temples like with stone, like the whole thing. And so when we mistreat each other, other people made in God's image, and when we trash this place, and when we are unjust, we're basically messing up his temple. Oops, sorry. And so you would think that the host, God, when all of his kids are trashing his crib, will get really ticked and just, you know, that would be it. You're kicked out forever. But God is no ordinary host. He's a God of hospitality. And his justice is meant to bring us to repentance so that he can invite us, all of us, whomever is willing to recognize his kingship over them, to invite us to his banqueting table. What a picture. And I love the fact, I don't know about you, but I love the fact that heaven is pictured as a bunch of food and wine. That's a great scene for me. Uh, anyway, in the ancient Near East, when a king took the throne, like it was coronated a new king, he would always throw a lavish banquet. I mean, he'd actually have a table and a banquet for like his nobles and stuff, but then all of his, his provinces, he would have these huge parties in the public square. He'd pay for everything, the wine, the food, everything, dancing, music, and he would do that for a couple reasons. One would be uh, to bless the people and to, frankly, to get favor with them. But the other reason was to see who was loyal to him. Because to come and eat at the king's party, at the king's table, is saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. And if you didn't show up at these things without, like, a major excuse, like you're bedridden or something like that, it was an act of rebellion. Does anyone remember when King Saul had dinner and David, who was in his court, didn't show up one day? Saul got furious and from that point on wanted to kill King David. King David not being at Saul's table was an act of rebellion. Okay. At this banquet in Isaiah 25, we see heavenly qualities, the best wine, the choicest meats. And in this passage, we see that Yahweh will swallow up the veil over people's faces. In Scripture, we see that no one can really see God face to face. He's too pure, too too perfect, too holy to be approached without a mediator. But in this picture, the veil that separates people from God is swallowed up by God himself. He will be present with us in intimacy. Right relatedness. Say tzedek. That's this picture. He's swallowing up that veil that separates us. 
in Jesus, the relationship between God and man and women and kids has been restored. First of all, when Jesus became flesh, God became flesh in Christ, he's like talking to people face to face. There's no like thing between Jesus and the people he talked to. So God is face to face with people, right? But then when Jesus died on the cross, we read that the veil in the temple separating the place where God was, the Holy of Holies, and the people was torn. And it was torn from the top to the bottom as if heaven were initiating this, not people. God tore it down. God swallowed up the veil that separates us. Awesome. We do not need to fear then approaching God because of what Jesus has done. Now here's another interesting thing about the banquet described in Isaiah 25. The word swallow is used two times. In Hebrew, swallow is translating the word ubila, which means destroy, swallow. So think swallow up, like you destroy something when you swallow it up. There's a promise of God destroying or swallowing up. That's what separates us from him, the veil. And there's the promise of God swallowing up death itself. Mary's saying of justice because Jesus was in her womb. And Jesus died that he might swallow up death itself. Jesus was born to bring justice. Justice in the social and political and justice of right relatedness with God. In Jesus, right? When we, when we look at his ministry, what do we see him doing? Turns over money, table, uh, money changers' tables because they're being unjust. We see him directly challenging corrupt religious leaders because they were oppressing people with their stringent rules. Uh, we see him defiant in the interrogation of King Herod and fearless in the face of Pontius Pilate, the representative of Caesar himself. Jesus came to bring justice. And those who are filled with his spirit, the apostles and the martyrs and the saints of old stood up to Caesar and to Hitler and to King Henry VIII and to corrupt governors and to drug lords and to the institution of slavery and human, human trafficking. And we are called to do the same. We live in this in-between time between Jesus' first advent, his first coming, and his second. And we, just like Mary, can live with the assurance that the world is about to turn, that Jesus is going to make it all new, that God's kingdom is going to come in full when Jesus the King returns. And on that day, nations will be held to account, and those who have repented are and are found in Jesus will be invited to the table. So, I have three charges. I think the text has three charges, which is why I'm saying them. They're not mine. But, I hear it saying to me, if you're convicted by your own lifestyle, if the Holy Spirit has been showing you ways you might be contributing to injustice, you can stop. You can repent. You can turn from it. Bring it before Jesus in prayer and watch to see how he will begin to transform you. It is why he came to bring justice one heart at a time. Second, if you have repented and have chosen to be a follower of Jesus, how might you and I be part of his kingdom agenda? You know, if you open up the paper, or you get the news online, you watch TV, 
just once a week, the problems are overwhelming. And sometimes it's paralyzing, and you think, I can't do anything to stop this, or I will do nothing. There are simply too many fronts of injustice for you and I uh, to tackle all at once. So I have good news for you. Individually, you are not called to save the world. That's why Jesus was born. That's why we celebrate and worship him. You're not him. Woo! But once we recognize Jesus as king and savior, we begin to see the world differently. And we begin to notice injustices and we can resist them. We don't bring the kingdom of God. We don't build the kingdom of God. You should never hear me from this place of a pulpit, music stand, saying, all right, church, we're going to go build the kingdom of God. That's nowhere in the Bible. We don't do that work. Otherwise, it's not gospel. It's not good news. The gospel is that Jesus brings the kingdom of God. The gospel is that Jesus does the rescuing and the saving. So what's left for us, the church? Well, quite a bit, actually. The weight's not on us to do the work. The privilege is ours to reflect the work. And so we get to be, N.T. Wright says, signposts pointing to something greater. I like that one. I also like reflectors. Like, we get to reflect kingdom values in the world. I'm not building the kingdom, but when I treat someone well with dignity and respect, with right relatedness, it reflects the kingdom of heaven. It shines it into a place where what people see or not, I don't know. And when I make economic choices that are just and right, it reflects the kingdom of heaven. Um, All of these things. When we take time out away from the end of the Seahawks game, to come here <laughs> and to worship the living God. We're reflecting something. We're recognizing, gosh, there's, there's something bigger, more important, in fact, than just the regular stuff we do every day. It's worth it to come and to worship together. So we reflect the kingdom of, of God, and we don't have to participate in injustice. We don't have to be silent. In fact, we get to participate with Jesus in the movement of reconciliation and subversion of corrupt power. Third, this one I think you can get, we should feast at Christmas. We should feast at Christmas. We should pull out all the stops. We should invite friends and family and those who are part of our lives but don't necessarily have friends and family or want to be with their friends and family. (laughs) We should feast because... It is an act in itself of subversion. It is an act in itself of a signpost pointing to something more. Because our feasting, with Jesus as the center of it, points to the fact that, yes, his kingdom is coming. Yes, one day we'll be at that banqueting table with him. When we feast, let's do it. Because God is extravagant. Because he gives us better than we deserve. Because he sent us Jesus, who is our justice and our peace. Thanks be to God. Lord, we talk a lot in the church about justice. Half the time, I'm not sure we grasp what it really is. And when we really start digging 
we come to the hard reality that we're often part of the injustice because of our attitudes, because of our inactions as much as our actions. And we pray have mercy. I'm so thankful for the good news that I am not the savior of the world. I am so thankful for the good news that these wonderful people here tonight are not the savior of the world either. I am thankful that we anticipate celebrating your arrival, Lord Jesus, and your return because you are the savior, the God of justice. Lord, we are aware that if you gave us what we deserve, it would not necessarily be a good thing for us. So we thank you, God of justice, that you are a God of grace and reconciliation. And we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and replace the broken parts of our nation and our world. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us new hearts that want your kingdom more than the one that we oftentimes prop up. Lord, help us to long for your kingdom and not our imagination of what your kingdom ought to be like. And we're praying these things because it will take a miracle. But we know that that is your desire and your work your job. So come, Lord Jesus, be born afresh in us even now, even this Advent. Amen.